Welcome to Cypress Bible Church. As last week, we uh, were able to gather in a couple of services with uh, under that limit of 250. Uh, today, uh, we are all virtual, uh, other than the essential personnel that are with us this morning. Uh, although our church isn't physically gathered together, we are united together by the spirit of our one great God. And so uh, even though we have closed our campus, uh, here at Cypress Bible Church, we're committed to being the church. And we've set up ways that your small group can meet virtually and continue to grow in community and uh, trust that you will take advantage of those. We've already had a, uh, uh, a prayer meeting that was virtual, and uh, that went very well. We look to uh, continue to do that. 
and I want to encourage you to take advantage of a drive-through prayer opportunity. Uh, this afternoon between 1 and 3 p.m. here on the church campus, you can drive in, stay in your car, and have uh, elders and pastors pray for you from a safe distance. And uh, if you feel the need of prayer and uh, you're able to uh, get out uh, and drive, then please do that. Take advantage of that opportunity. There will be uh, many such things in the days ahead. Uh, so despite the challenges, I see these ex as exciting times for the kingdom of God, exciting ways in which we can serve God and know him better. Uh, while our Community Sunday, which was planned for next week, has been postponed, uh, we will live stream our worship time. So uh, please join us in that and uh, let your friends and neighbors know that they're welcome to be part of our virtual con congregation as well. So now I just want to call us to worship and use the inspired words of King David. Uh, Psalm 34 was written at a very difficult time in David's life, and his outlook is one that all of us who follow Jesus need to have today. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that's our privilege this morning. Let's do that now as we sing in the middle of the storm with the song, Raise a Hallelujah. Louder and louder, you're gonna hear my 
Verses together now. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to be still today. Worship you. And hide me No. 
Father in heaven, help us to be still and know that you are God. Lord Jesus, enable us today to be satisfied in you, our perfect Savior. Holy Spirit, empower us 
to live peacefully in the whirlwind of today. Father, Son, and Spirit, be our strength and comfort and guide in the midst of the storm. Father, today I bring before you those who are facing financial concerns through the loss of income, through the loss of employment. Lord, I pray that uh, you would meet those needs as we call on you. That you would be the rock, the salvation of all who depend upon you. Lord, I pray for our first responders, those who are in harm's way in a variety of different situations, serving our community, serving our country, serving around this world. Lord, I pray for your protection, for your strength, that they would be your messengers in this day. I pray for those who are enduring health problems. Ask that uh, you would comfort them. Uh, for those who have lost loved ones and are unable to gather to grieve, Lord, I pray that you would be their comfort, their strength. For those who are in relational crisis that's brought about by increased tension and anxiety, I pray, Lord, that uh, couples and families would keep their eyes on you in these days. Lord, for those who are vulnerable, who are, because of their age or life situation, are also in harm's way right now, I pray that you would allow them to see how they can cast their cares on you because you care for them. Lord, you've promised that your church will prevail. And so I ask, Lord, that we would see great spiritual victory in these days, that rather than fear, we would see that you are in control as you always have been. Your plan remains. Your ways are beyond our ways, beyond our understanding. For who can know the mind of the Lord? And so we put our hope and trust in you. In these days, make us as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves for everything that we face. Uh, may we make the most of every opportunity that you put in front of us because the days are evil. May your goodness shine through all our interactions and decisions. May the light of Christ radiate from your people so that those around us will glorify our Father in heaven. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease. A comforter, my all in all. He 
in the love of Christ I stand. Whoa, 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 whoa,
Good morning. My name is Jonathan Chang, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Cyprus Bible Church, and we're so glad you're worshiping with us virtually today. And so I do want to give a special shout-out to all of our students. I love you all, I miss you all, and we'll see you soon. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a TV show that ran from February 19 of 68 all the way to August 31st of 2001. It was a television show that was geared towards children, and it would teach them ways to uh, develop emotional and social skills, and, and it taught them that they were valuable, that they were loved and accepted through the different lessons uh, that Mr. Rogers did, whether it be a song, activity, or even just the friends that he would bring on the show to hang out for the day. Although that show was geared towards kids, you could easily say that a lot of those principles and things that were on the show were applicable to adults as well, especially the way that he defined the word neighbor. We even see it in the show's theme song, which say this, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? I love the way that Fred Rogers coined this term and made the term neighbor such a common part of our English vernacular. But before he even used this term neighbor, we see Jesus use this term in the illustration of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to read today from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And it reads this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do in order to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, when Jesus tells this story, the situation leading up to this is Jesus had sent out his disciples. He had sent up 72, two by two, to go into Jerusalem to proclaim the coming kingdom, to tell people all about the teachings that Christ has taught. They have just returned and they are celebrating and debriefing about the amazing, wondrous things that they had seen as they went out two by two. And we segue into this teaching section and Jesus is sitting with uh, his students and other people who want to hear and learn about the kingdom of God. They want to learn about how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and leads to this lawyer in this moment standing up asking Jesus a question. He asks, how do I inherit eternal life? You see, this is the first of two questions that he asks. And the lawyer that you see is not like the lawyers that we have today. He's not the tough Texas hammer. These lawyers are theologians. They are people that are experts in the law. They know the Torah well, backwards and forwards. They can tell you everything in it. And this man wants to put Jesus to the test. You see, he's not asking with good intentions what is going on. What he wants to do is he wants to get Jesus to say something that will counter what the law teaches. He wants to cause Jesus to have an uprising or arouse the the Jews that are following him and learning from him. He wants to get them to unfollow him. He wants him to lose likes. And so that's why he asks, asks this question, how, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The thing that strikes me as odd is, is, is that his motivation is really bad, but this is such a crucial and essential question that everyone wants an answer to. And so the way that this question is worded, as, as many as well as others that is seen in this passage, is this man asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He is assuming that there has to be some specific rules and guidelines in order for him to achieve salvation. But Jesus has told the crowds all throughout that he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the rules. You don't need to follow a set list of rules in order to inherit eternal life. You need to just believe that he is Lord, that he came, to, he came and lived a perfect life. He died for your sins. He hadn't died yet, but he was going to. And that he was going to resurrect three days later. And he said that if you believe in that, you will one day have eternal life. 
You see, we see in regards to eternal life, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. We can't work for our salvation. Galatians 2.16 tells us this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We also see as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, salvation is not something that you can work or earn. It is something that is a gift. It is freely given to you. And so Jesus responds to this question of, of how can I earn salvation? He doesn't respond with an answer. He responds with a question of his own. And Jesus does this a lot, as you see. And he responds with him, well, tell me, what does it say in the law? And immediately the lawyer, the lawyer responds, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer responds, love God and love people. Love God and love your neighbor. You see, he's quoting a couple of texts from the Torah. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which tells you to love the, Lord with all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Loving your neighbors from Leviticus 19.18. You see, uh, these were passages that uh, lawyers would know backwards and forwards. They would have this memorized. They would be ready to answer with these, they would be ready to answer questions with these answers anytime posed. It's as if when we grew up in Sunday school and the typical answer would be John 3.16 or Jesus, that's what these answers were like. They were ready to use them at all the time. Now, another thing that helped though is these lawyers would have these phylacteries and they were these little leather pouches that they would either wear on their wrists or on their foreheads and they had these tiny scrolls that would have these passages in them. So they would have them learned. They would have them memorized. They would have them to refer to. It would be as if I wore a fanny pack with a bunch of note cards in them with passages. Now what's interesting is to, to the scribe's surprise, Jesus responds with, yes, do this and you will live. Because he wasn't expecting that answer. Because he wanted Jesus to say something to cause a stir. And Jesus says, yes, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and souls shows you that God isn't giving you a list to follow. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul it shows you that it's about a heart relationship that you have with God. It is one that shapes your life. This relationship is one that your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings and actions, they all must be controlled by God. It's about a personal and intimate relationship. And in addition to that, loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is an outward expression of your love for God. It is a demonstration of that love and it is an active love it is not inactive it is one that goes and acts shows and demonstrates loving your neighbor proves and shows others that you love god religion doesn't do that rites rituals ceremonies those don't show that you love god but loving your neighbor that shows that you love god john 15:12 tells us this this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you and Galatians 5.14 says, For the full law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is why Jesus agrees with the lawyer. Because if you do this and you follow the law to a T, you live a perfect life. But the reality is none of us can live a perfect life. We've all sinned. We have all missed the mark of perfection. 
And so here, the lawyer is in a little bit of a tiff because if he recognizes publicly that he hasn't done that, then he's going to lose face. But deep down, he also knows he hasn't done that. He needs a way out. And so in this moment, he asks a second question. He wants to justify himself. So he asks, okay, well, who's my neighbor then? The lawyer needs to justify himself because he doesn't want Jesus to justify him. Yet Jesus the entire time has been saying, I can justify you. You just got to believe. You just got to trust. And the lawyer doesn't like that because the lawyer has been so set set and focused on a works-based religion that he needs a list of things to do. He has to have a checklist. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Yay, I've earned it. And he just can't handle that. And not just him. A lot of people couldn't handle that. The lawyer also puts himself in another pickle, if I may say, because when he asks the question, who is my neighbor, he's implying that, is there someone I don't have to love? Is there somewhere that I can draw a line where my love can end? Is there a non-neighbor I don't have to love? Now, the irony in this is, uh, as an expert of the law, he should have known in Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, just a few verses after Leviticus 18, it, talks th- it says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, he already knows who his neighbor is. He just doesn't really want to admit it. He doesn't want to fess up to it. R. Kent Hughes says this. He says that a love for people or the lack of it reveals the quality and effectiveness of the philosophy that we hold. You see, in Leviticus 19.18, the Hebrew word for neighbor is reah. And what that means is your brother or your people. And what happened is the rabbis would teach that as it's, it's your own people group, that, that it was your own fellow Israelite. They limited the term of what a neighbor is. And by doing so, they literally limited God. And so we move on into the New Testament where the Greek word for neighbor is plasion. And it literally means one who is near, one who is close to you, those around you. You see, that is the term of neighbor and that is what Jesus is wanting him to see. And so Jesus, in order to fully illustrate his point and make this guy understand, it's story time. Because that's what Jesus likes to do. He likes to tell stories. He likes to tell parables. And so he talks about a man. He's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This man gets robbed, beat up, mugged, and left for dead. Now I want to give you guys a little clarity in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Is that if you understand the geography and the the things that encompass this story it'll give you a better understanding and appreciation of the magnitude of everything. And so this route between the two cities was a 17-mile road. You had Jerusalem, which was a city on a hill, and Jericho, which was literally a city below sea level. It was a 3,300-foot descent. It was a treacherous road. It was uh, a lot of terrain. There were caves and rocks that people could hide behind, uh, and if they wanted to, they could jump out, rob you, mug you, case in point, in this story. And so it was one that you didn't ever want to walk alone. Uh, It was known as the way of blood. And so with Jesus opening the story with this line, it's the equivalent to us watching a scary movie saying, don't go in that room. But this guy walks down the road alone, and the unthinkable happens. So he's beaten, he's stripped, robbed, and left for dead. 
Now, Jesus doesn't want this to be the focal point of the story because there's so much more he wants everyone to learn and understand. And so he continues this story. And he talks, the first character we have that comes down is a priest. You have this priest that comes by, he walks, he sees this person, and continues to go. He passes right by him. This priest also is coming from Jerusalem, going back down to Jericho. And so... He's going home from work. This priest, this leader of the temple, your quote-unquote church leader, passed by someone without even seeing if they need help. Now, I don't want to be too harsh, right? There are some specific rules that priests had to follow to maintain cleanliness. And so, um, for instance, if he touches a dead body, it would take seven days for him to become ceremonial clean again. And so, in doing so, there's a high likelihood that he could miss his turn in rotation, he, he could lose his turn at his job, and he can't sacrifice his work or duty in order to help this person. So he must keep on going. Now, the reality also is, as a priest, on the hierarchy of social status in Jewish culture, he was the cream of the crop. And so the reality is, this priest would not be alone either. He would have a posse or an entourage that would be with him to protect him, to be with him, because first of all, he's a celebrity. Second of all, we need to take care of the leader of our temple. And none of them stop to help either. They follow how poor leadership leads. And so the priest goes by. And so talking about this social hierarchy of Jewish tradition, Jewish cultures, you have your priests who are at the top. Your second, second place people are your Levites. Then you have your layman Jews, your average Jews at third. From there you have your Jewish tax collectors, your Jewish sinners, your Jewish outcasts. They're number four. After that you have your Samaritans, and at the very bottom of the totem pole you have your Gentiles. And so understanding that, we see who comes next into the story. A Levite comes by, and he passes by just the same. Now the Levite, he might be afraid of the robbers that might be here. There could be some fear. Uh, The Levite might be a part of the entourage of the priest, and he doesn't want to make him look bad. You see, Levites were the ones that kind of helped oversee how temple worship looked. And again, in the end, you have two religious leaders that left a person alone. Now, this man, to give you some context, was probably a fellow Jew. You see, Jesus didn't give specifics about this person in in, uh, Jewish storytelling context. If you're not given a specific title, you can be assumed that the person is going to be a Jew. And so you think about that now, the way they interpreted the word neighbor, which is your brother or your people, and they ignored their own people. Again, it gives a lot more significance to this. And so let's talk about these two guys. Let's talk about the priest and the Levite. They were not willing to go and help. Now, were they being malicious? We talked about that earlier. I don't believe so. I think what caused them to go by was their busyness. Right? They, were not fo- they were focused on fulfilling their duties. They were so focused that they put compassion to the side. Maybe they even thought that this guy traveled the road alone. Maybe this is a tough lesson he had to learn because you shouldn't walk on the way of the blood alone. I don't know. But what is important for us to see is that these two men put work, religion, busyness before helping a neighbor. I like to say that these guys like to play church. And what I mean by that is they like to go through 
they like to just go and show that they know everything and can do everything, but when come push to shove, they didn't want to do anything to help anyone. They just wanted to play church. They didn't want to live into James 4.17, which tells us that, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. They didn't want to live into Micah 6.8 fully, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Instead, their lives represented more like what's given in Matthew 25, 41-45, when Jesus gave this warning, which says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so the question we ask ourselves today, do we just play church? Are we truly compassionate? You see, I'm so thankful the story doesn't end right there. And so what's interesting, Jesus introduces a third character. He introduces a Samaritan. You see, what's crazy is the audience, they love stories like this, right? It's kind of a a juicy, scandalous story where the super privilege didn't really help out the average person who needed help. It's very soap opera-esque. And so they're excited because if you follow the hierarchy... The next person that's going to come and save the day is the Jew, the average Jew. But Jesus, wanting to rock the world, skips the Jews, skips the outcasts, and goes straight to the lowly Samaritans. When hearing the word Samaritan, the crowd would literally go, (gasps) because Samaritans were highly disliked by the Jews. You could say they were hated by the Jews. Samaritans were half-breeds. In the Old Testament, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, you can read all about that in 2 Kings 17 if you want, but they intermarried with the Jews, which a lot of the Jews then uh, produced half-breed children. They ended up following pagan rituals. They started worshiping idols, a lot of bad things, and Jews hated that. They hated that they weren't purebloods. The Jews also hated that when they were rebuilding the temple, as in Ezra, that Samaritans came by and harassed them. Samaritans made it difficult to rebuild the temple. Samaritans threw pig's blood in the temple to make it unclean. And so Israelites, Jews, felt like they had justified reasons to hate this people group. There's definitely some tension in this story. And so what does the Samaritan do, though? The Samaritan sees the injured Jewish man, and he goes towards him. You see, we've seen the priest and the Levite, they pass right on by, but this Samaritan goes towards this injured man. And why? Because he had compassion. You see, that's the key word into being a good neighbor, is compassion. The Greek word for compassion is splankna. It means your innards. It means that when you see something, you you don't like it. You're moved to action because your innards give you compassion. You want to go and do something. Something must be done. And that is why this Samaritan went towards the injured Jewish man. And how did he show his compassion? Jesus lists everything that he did. He bandaged him up with oil and wine. This was basically your first century first aid kit. He sets him on his own animal and walks him back into town, down to Jericho. So he literally, the animal he was riding on, he puts the injured person in, and I'll I'll walk all that way. 
17 miles is not a casual stroll. It is a pretty long walk. And this man did that on his feet in order for this person to be able to ride on an animal. He took him to an inn to give him protection and shelter. Now, inns were not a nice place back then. It wasn't like going to a Hyatt or a Marriott. It's more like going to one of these shady rent-by-the-hour places where you stay. And because of that, at these inns, there would be rampant prostitution and drunkenness and drug usage and all the other bad things you can think about. And so when he takes him to this inn, he goes and pays for his room board and he stays with him. Right? He pays two denarii to the innkeeper for this guy to stay. That's two days worth of work. And from a statement of him living in the inn, what it is, it's, it's 24 to 48 days of room and lodge. Two months paid just like that for this guy. So he stays with him to help him heal, to help him rest up, and to protect him as well. And then as he leaves, he gives the innkeeper, he tells him, hey, I got to take off, but please continue watching my friend. Please take care of my neighbor. And if you spend any more money outside of this two denarii that I gave you, just let me know. I'll pay it. I'm good for it because I gave you two months worth of room and board to take care of this guy. So he was a trustworthy person. He gave a lot of resources to help this guy. So again, how did this compassion, how was compassion demonstrated by the Samaritan? He went towards him, right? He personally reached out to this person. He bandaged him up. He helped ease his pain. He poured oil and wine on him. He gave up his own physical goods to help this man. He set him on his animal. He gave up his own personal comfort in order for this person to be able to go with him. He provided rooming, right? The basic necessities that we need, a shelter over our heads. He gave that to him. He took care of him. Literally, he looked after him personally. He sacrificed whatever he had to do in order to look after this person. That's what loving your neighbor is. And so Jesus responds to the lawyer, which one of these three acted like a neighbor? To us, it's all very clear who did, right? The Samaritan. Well, the lawyer responds, the one who showed mercy. You see, because of the hatred and animosity that Jews have towards Samaritans, he can't even say the word the Samaritan. This shows the amount of hate and anger that he has within him. So again, going back to the beginning of the story, he's not loving the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving his neighbor. So to me, this actually hits home. This for those unaware, I am a half-breed. My father's Chinese and my mom is white. And the thing that was so crazy, and I never really had thought about it until I was prepping for the story, but I can remember clearly not knowing where I fit in, not knowing where I belong, because in middle school, I was made fun of for being Chinese. As a kid, I was made fun of or rejected or gossiped about by others because my stepmom married a, a, a Chinese man who had mixed kids, right? I wasn't a pure breed. And so for the longest time, I never felt accepted. And so to understand the hate, I, I, I feel like I can legitimately say I understand this hate that this Samaritan could feel. I bring this up because part of being a good neighbor is throwing out your presuppositions that you have about other people. It's being willing to look past of who that person is and what they look like. Being a good neighbor is being willing to sit down with that person you're unfamiliar with, maybe that person you don't like, and building a relationship and getting to know them. 
It's amazing what can happen when you sit down and get to know people. Tim Keller says this, that we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Such a convicting quote, I think, for all of us. And, and in the end, what does this parable mean to me today? What are we going to do with this? Right? And I want you guys to remember, in order to love people, you have to move towards people. To be a good neighbor, you have to build relationships. To be a good neighbor, you have to have compassion. You cannot be a good neighbor without compassion. We should never ask the question like the lawyer, who is my neighbor? Instead, we should ask ourselves, what is my duty? Because remember, three people came by the injured man, but only one person acted. Love doesn't ask, how far do I go? Love asks, what can I do? That's what being a good neighbor is all about. And so what does that mean today? Times are crazy today. March 22nd, 2020, we are in a country that is full-on scared right now, fearful of the unknown, because a lot is happening. And so how do we be a good neighbor in today's day and age? Well, the first thing is, number one, we have to notice people. And what, am I, what do I mean by that? How do I notice someone? Even with social distancing, there are ways to notice people. When you're in the grocery store and you see someone who needs help, you can go towards them and help them. If you see someone on your block that is vulnerable to being struck with the coronavirus and getting sick, go see how you can serve them. You know what? Even better yet, just go and do it. It was pretty neat. Yesterday, some of our neighbors were across the street. They live across the street from us. Uh, there's an elderly couple that lives next to them. They were just blowing the pollen out of the yard after they did their yard work. Right? That's being a good neighbor. Just go in and serve him without asking. Help run errands for those that can't leave their house. Go pick up groceries for them. Go pick up whatever is needed at the store as well as you can. But to me, also being a good neighbor, stay at home. Don't congregate in large groups knowing what's going on with this virus. Being a good neighbor is sacrificing your personal desires that you want to do in order to take care of those who are the least of these. And so being a good neighbor might just mean sitting at home. The next one is pray for readiness. And what do I mean by that? Pray so that God will use you to be a loving neighbor. Pray for God to put people that you can be a loving neighbor to. Ultimately, pray for gospel moments. Pray that as you love your neighbor, that you have the opportunity to tell them about the hope that you have in this crazy world in which we live. That you can tell them about Jesus, how Jesus is your Lord. And because of that, you don't worry and stress about things. Instead, you know that there is a beautiful heaven that awaits you because you have told the world, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that he came and died for my sins. No one else could do that because he was perfect. And because he was perfect, he died on the cross because he's Lord, he resurrected three days later. And the Bible, the word of God tells me, if I believe that in my hearts, I confess that with my lips, I am saved. We should pray for moments to be, real, to be ready to share that. The next one, don't be hesitant. Don't hesitate. Just go and do. Stop overthinking it. This is not a, a complicated formula. Just go and love. And then lastly, be generous. 
right? If you have the capability to be generous financially, help someone out. There are a lot of people who are hurting right now financially because of everything that has gone completely upside down. If you don't have those resources, you can still be generous with your time. You can write a letter and mail it into a memory care facility so people don't get left behind. You can call your neighbor. You can call people you haven't talked to up. Hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? Time is such a great resource that we don't ever think about. You can give your time. You see, because right now, as a church, as believers and followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity to show this nation why we follow Jesus. And you know what? The world is watching how we react right now. So are they going to see a priest and a Levite, or are they going to see a Samaritan? Our neighbor is anyone who needs mercy. Well, what if they're homeless? That's your neighbor. What if they're liberal? They're your neighbor. What if they're conservative? They're your neighbor. What if they're gay? It's your neighbor. What if they're a drug addict or an alcoholic? It's your neighbor. What if I don't like them? It's your neighbor. A lot of what ifs. The only answer is they're your neighbor. Anyone who needs mercy is your neighbor. So about a month ago, we had a a student ministry event. It's called City Lights, and it was a way for us to demonstrate how we can be a, a loving neighbor to our city of Houston. And so if you watch the screen, you'll see this video. City Lights 2020 this year. Uh, our theme was, how far are you willing to go with this? And this is a question that uh, not just students, but all of us as believers, as followers of Christ, we need to ask ourselves daily because uh, we have gotten into this rut where we like to play church and not really be the church. We like to be comfortable and not be challenged. And, uh, and as Christians, we are called to so much more, to greater things. And so we have to think on a daily basis, how far are you willing to go with this thing called faith? How far are you willing to go to demonstrate to others that you love Jesus Christ? How far are you willing to go to tell others about Jesus Christ? My group went to the third ward and we were cleaning up trash and painting um, benches and picnic tables and pergolas in kind of a park that we set up in one of the lots. And it's really cool to go to the third ward and get to do that kind of stuff because it's a place where I remember cleaning up trash as a sophomore and so getting to see the progression of like a trash filled lot all the way to a park where people can fellowship and learn about God and play chess and all those great things is, is a very cool thing to be a part of. As Christians, we are called to be little Christ, Christ representatives on the earth. 
And as we represent him in the community, we are spreading the gospel. We're not getting paid for this. We're doing this as volunteer work to show that we as Christians love people as Jesus loved them. Give to me. 
receive these words that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So go and love your neighbor. God bless you all.